I want to talk about, in this last conference, the relationship of sacred tradition to understanding the liturgy, and how it's not possible to understand the liturgy except in context of tradition. The depth of the tradition of the Church, that is the Catholic Church, is gloriously manifest in what the Church calls the monuments. The monuments are among the richest aspects of our tradition as Catholics, and they constitute a large part of the visible aspect of the tradition and patrimony which your Sunday mass-goer knows and sees. There are a variety of aspects of different kinds of tradition, but I only want to focus just on monuments because they're very important for us in our perceptions about the Catholic faith. Monuments constitute an important source of our knowledge of the faith and our Catholic patrimony. A monument is something which a creature, normally just a Catholic human being, throughout the ages created by the work of his own hands. A monument proceeds from faith and may even incorporate divinely given or taught teachings. The composition or creation of some monuments enjoys the guidance and direction of the Holy Ghost. So in other words, when people create something, by create I mean they make something, they fashion something, the Holy Ghost may actually be guiding them in the process. George Agis, in his one of his one of the best works I've ever seen on tradition called Tradition in the Catholic Church, or I think it's also Tradition and the Church, says, quote, Divine Providence did not leave the church without irrefragable documents. So those documents would never, never cease being, they would always be passed on to show the world that she is the greatest work in creation. It is still more evident through the ancient monuments of Christian, unquote. Because the monuments proceed from a Catholic faith, and since they are often commissioned or written by the Church herself, they constitute a manifestation of the teachings of the Church. Therefore, we as Catholics can look at these monuments as signs, and in some cases, actual formulations in words of what we believe. The first kind of monument is the various liturgies and rituals written, promulgated, and approved by the Church. This would include the various missals and rituals of the sacraments promulgated by the popes. In this regard, every missal ever promulgated by a pope constitutes a source of knowledge for what we believe as Catholics. The, these missiles also constitute a manifestation of that faith, as the conferences before me have clearly shown, insofar as the faith approves of specific forms of worship, of which God himself has preordained certain elements, for example, in the Mass and the words of consecration. We see in the Old Testament that the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament were written by God. He was told directly to Moses and they were written down specifically because God wanted detailed ways of determining, he told us detail, in detailed ways exactly how we are supposed to worship him. Worship of God is not to be left to the caprice or to the, to the particular individual, or that is, it's not to be left to the caprice of the creature. It's analogous to this. If I walked into your home, and, or let's put it in a different context. I invite you to come to my home. 
I've never known you, never seen you before. The minute you walk in the door, I tell everybody what you like. So when it comes time to sit down for dinner, I tell you, oh, you don't like steak, you would prefer squid. And I keep going down this, and I keep telling you what you like. In the end, you would think there was something wrong with me. I don't know what really, in the end, what you like, unless you tell me. The same thing applies to Gucci. We don't know what he likes unless he tells us. And that's why he came and told us in the Old Testament, this is what you have to do. And then Christ modified the ceremonial laws so that the old ceremony is no longer in force. So the Jewish religion no longer has efficacy. In fact, I don't know if most people realize there's not a single practicing Jew anymore. Not one. Why? Because to be a practicing Jew, you have to be able to offer sacrifices in their temple. The temple no longer exists for them. So the Catholicism, when Christ came and established Catholicism, he modified the ceremonial laws and he promulgated them during, of course, during the Last Supper. Yet these monuments, for example, the missals, are highly important. It is always conceded that if a feast in a liturgical calendar for a long period of time the existence of a saint of the feast or the event of the feast itself took on greater certitude the longer it was part of the calendar. So the earlier it was in the church, the more certitude we actually have of the fact that this thing actually happened. The fact that certain saints and feasts have been dropped from the liturgical calendar is an effrontery to monumental tradition. This is no mere matter. The monuments are sacred objects. So the missile is a sacred thing. So when people speak in a derogatory way about the missile or the old mass or things like this, it's a form of sacrilege because they're profaning a sacred thing. And the passing of these monuments from one generation to another constitutes a sacred action. It's a supernatural thing. It is a good and holy thing to pass on the monuments to a subsequent generation. In fact, the Second Council of Emphasis condemns somebody if they reject the tradition, the, what they call ecclesiastical tradition, of which later they list the monuments. So if someone rejects, for example, the Missal, a problem, you can't even consider yourself Catholic. Conversely, the destruction of a monument or its modification was tolerated in the past when a greater or more perfect monument was erected or promulgated. In the context of the liturgy, that meant that missals were updated to augment the calendar of feasts, to accommodate the newly canonized saints, or to make minor, very minor, changes to the worship of the church in order to make it more perfect. But wholesale modifications of a liturgy were considered in the past as a form of impiety. Now, impiety here we're using in the technical theological sense, not in the sense in which we see somebody who comes to Mass and they're very devout, we say they're very pious. We're not talking about that. Piety is a virtue by which one reverences one's superior, one's fathers, and those who go before us. So it's actually an some of those are, you know, parts of the magisterium of the church and things like that. And so it's impious 
Because to block or deny the perfection of a form of worship in feasts of saints, that is, when they remove them, to the subsequent generations, is to reject what our prior generations held as dear, or as holy, or as good. It is impious because the wholesale modification presumes that the prior saints were not adequate were not adequately directed by the Holy Ghost in the composition of the prayers of the Mass. Every ritual of the Mass, except for the new Mass, which we'll talk about in a little bit, every ritual of the Mass, even in the um, eastern parts of the church, can trace themselves back to the Apostle except one, and that is the Roman Rite, the Tridentine Rite. It is believed that the Tridentine Rite we know the earliest we have anything about it is about the year eight, uh, 180 to 200. And then after that, there's a very clear line. We see actually what's going on. And some of the reason that is is because of the fact that during the period of persecution, you simply didn't write down the sacred mysteries because they could be easy. But scholars are becoming more and more convinced that St. Peter himself may have written parts of the canon that appear in the Tridentine Rite. And so they all stem back to apostolic tradition, all of the rites, except for the new mass. And we are not talking about the minor saints here when we're talking about the composition of these things, of, the, of the rituals. We're talking about some of the greatest saints in history. To presume to block the passing of a monument, not by perfecting it, which is actually part of an authentic tradition in which you take what is given to you and perfect it and pass it on in a greater state to those afterwards, which means you don't deny or block or destroy the tradition, but you perfect it in some way. But when you block it, it, it and by modifying it in such a way as to deny many of the elements of that monument, it is to presume that one who does so is greater than the saints, such as St. Gregor the Great, Pope Pius V, and others and that God had not adequately guided the saints in history. To take a, a missile and just say, you know, that's evil. You know, what happened in the past, the old right, that's just bad, it's ridiculous. Or to deride it is, in fact, to deny providential history. That is, that God provides for us through history. It is also impious because it is a denial of God's providential care through the ages. Again, while modern modifications augment the monument, and increase the patrimony of the members of the church, the wholesale changes constitute a denial of our patrimony. We cannot claim that modern man is somehow different than his predecessors. The fact is that human nature simply does not change. And the last century has proven that rather well. Modern man is just as sinful, barbaric, and disordered as the previous generations, and in some cases even more so. Every generation suffers from original and actual sin, and therefore every generation needs the same remedies as all the other prior generations. The fact is that since each generation in human nature and the same defects means that each generation needs the same remedy. Now the liturgy is a kind of remedy for man, by which we man is properly oriented away from creatures and ordered towards God himself. Therefore, every authentic liturgy would be an appeal to every generation. In other words, if you have an authentic liturgy, which orients man to his proper final end, which is God himself, 
each generation, which has that same finality, when it sees that in the liturgy, there will be a kind of consonance or a harmony. And so they'll be inclined to accept it and to want to accept it unless they themselves suffer from some type of depravity. Also, faith, when, we, when a person has a strong faith and they see in a monument, like in the liturgy, something which expresses the Catholic faith, there's a certain resonance, a certain peace, in a certain sense, a certain spiritual pleasure that arises from seeing it. If we do major changes to the liturgy, we consign the liturgy to irrelevance and to do distaste of the subsequent generations. Why? Because it gets mired down in the tastes and desires of a particular generation. The liturgy has to be timeless. And that's why in the past it was only modified slightly, because it was recognized that it was a whole, an organic thing passed from generation to generation. And one would never presume that we were, that our generation was somehow differently, that we could go and play around with it, because we recognized it's not only us that need this thing, we have to pass on the tradition intact to the people that come after us. It's our obligation. And this is manifest, this, the fact that it's certain, there is a certain irrelevance whenever the liturgy is constantly changing or when the monuments are passed on intact, which gives it a type of timelessness and eternity to it. The fact is, is that the younger generations simply find these modern liturgies not interesting or thrilling. It also explains why a traditional Latin mass, at the average one, to me is usually well under 40. 40 and under. The reason this is the case is because the ancient liturgy was written in a way that was not bound to any culture of a specific age. Therefore, it was capable of appealing to every generation. It wasn't something written in a decadent de um, decade and then passed on to each generation. I always tell people, if we were supposed to, if we're, you know, if we're, if we're trying to modernize the liturgy, why are we still stuck in the 60s? Why is the music still from the 60s? Why is the liturgy still from the 60s? Why are the vestments still from the 60s? We're not even in the year 2000 yet, if that's going to be the principle. But what that shows us is, is that the liturgy must remain timeless, and each generation must leave it intact so that its own defects and its own problems don't get put into the tradition and then passed on to affect the subsequent generations. The ancient sacred books containing the various rites of the church constitute a true source of knowledge for us. We can learn about the faith and the prayers contained in these rituals, as well as how the church understood how the sacred realities, such as the sacraments, are to be treated and properly adorned with ritual. Since all of these things manifest the faith in various degrees, they constitute a true form of learning for the faithful, which you know we've been talking about throughout these conferences. This is why the promulgation of a rite is so important, as is evidence in the phrase lex orandi, lex credendi. The way you pray is going to determine the way you believe. If you change the way people pray, you will end up changing the way they believe. There is simply no way around it. Because the ancient rituals manifest the faith and the church's moral code in practice, the ancient rituals are always something by which subsequent rituals are to be judged. Since every rite manifests the faith of the church, no matter how much modern theologians and ecclesiastics want these things to go away, no, no matter how much they would like the old mass to go away, the fact is that even if, God forbid, 
its use was to be completely die out, the ancient rite of mass would still remain a principle of judgment, what we are supposed to believe regarding the newer rituals. Why? Because it's an expression of faith, and that faith is a manifest. We can learn what the faith teaches through these rituals, and therefore that teaches us what we're supposed to understand about the newer rituals. Moreover, the ancient rite of mass, this liturgical monument, affected and shaped culture, which again was talked about earlier, which we now live in, and we are often the foundation, the basis of culture itself, since culture comes from the Latin word cultus, which means worship, so that you deter- culture is ultimately determined by the form of worship. We know this. Why? Because the cult determines the behavior that's acceptable for the people who engage in that form of worship, so that when they go out and they're not part, partaking in the worship itself, the worship still determines how they're to behave outside of it. And so it forms the whole culture. The fact that there has been a collapse in the use of the various rituals of the church, the sacraments and things of this sort, is a direct cause of the collapse of Catholic culture. Another category of monuments connected to the liturgy and which affect the liturgy is Christian art, which manifests the glory of the church and of God. And there are different kinds of art, among which one one is physical churches. Every traditional Catholic knows of the experience of having his senses and mind lifted to God by entering a magnificent church. Magnificent comes from the two Latin words magnus and fatere, which means literally to do something great. The construction of these churches was monumental, that is, it was a great work. These churches, their form and their structure, their layout, tell us something about the faith of those who believe it, again, as was mentioned before. In magnificent churches, the sanctuary is clearly marked off from the rest of the church and elevated to show the primacy of its status. It is the place of sacrifice, and the altar orientation tells us who the liturgy is about. Is it about us, or is it about God? The sanctuary tells us that we are in a heavenly court, since when Christ who becomes present in the Eucharist, the sanctuary becomes the heavenly court of God. We also learn our own place with respect to God by the lowly place we take as the faithful do in relation to the heavenly court represented by the sanctuary. The monumental tradition with respect to churches is very important for the stability of the Catholic faith of those who attend Mass in these churches. Since the monument often manifests some aspect of faith, to modify the monument requires great care so that one does not leave the other people the impression that the, that the faith is changing. Like the liturgy, if a church is modified too much, since the monument manifests our faith, it can leave some of the impression, again, that the faith has changed. The construction of these kinds of monuments is a manifestation of the devotion, charity, and faith of those who constructed them, which is something to be revered. You don't trash it. The liturgy itself often determines the construction of a church, since the church is designed for the liturgy to take place in it, and therefore is conformed to the liturgy itself. Therefore, different liturgy beget different church structures. While at times some physical monuments such as these must be reverently dismantled because their physical life has come to an end, nevertheless, they should not be gutted or destroyed when their physical life has come to an end. 
While it may be necessary to reverently deconsecrate and dismantle a church to avoid sacrilege because of disuse of the church and therefore its decay, nevertheless, this should only be done when absolutely necessary. If the monument is constructed in right faith, there is no reason to radically change it unless one is augmenting the beauty and glory of the church, that is, one is trying to manifest more perfectly what the church believes. This is not done by gutting the church, by taking out the statues, sledgehammering the high altars and things of this sort. This type of behavior in the past has always been associated in the church with heresy, particularly iconical. We saw it also during the Protestant revolts because of the loss of their faith. This is not only unjust to God, because these things manifest the glory of God and therefore detract from his glory and therefore unjust to him, but is a sin against charity to our neighbor, which again was mentioned earlier. Since these kinds of monuments are the general patrimony of the church, they belong to all of us in a certain sense. Well, in one sense, they ultimately belong to God. But in a certain sense, God, they're a gift from God to us, so they belong to all of us. Even though they're under the care of specific individuals, those specific individuals do not have the right to destroy these monuments since they belong to the general patrimony of the church. This is why in Rome they put out a decree that they were forbidden to remove high altars at one point. It is a kind of robbery in which subsequent generations are robbed of the monuments which will ennoble their spirits and lift their minds and hearts to God, not only in respect to the churches but to the, all the monuments, the missiles and things of this sort. It is a kind of robbery of God who deserves worship in suitably appointed churches Monuments of this sort strengthen the faith of those who see them and instruct them in the teachings of the church by the various statues and saints depicted there. Which brings us to the next form of Christian art, which is sculpture and paintings. Christian art, like many of the physical monuments, are a visible part of that assistance with which the Holy Ghost helps the church to keep intact the deposit of faith and not fall into error. The deposit of faith are the essential teachings and elements of sanctification which Christ came and gave to the church. And these monuments help to pass on that deposit of faith and to keep it from corrupting and falling into error. In the catacombs of St. Priscilla, there is a famous fresco entitled Froxioponis, which dates to the first half of the second century. This fresco clearly represents the sacrifice of the Mass, indicating that the Mass was taking place very early on in the Church. The myriad, or myriad, depending on which part of the country you're from, of pictures and statues of Our Lady clearly represent teaching, such as those icons which contain words such as Theotokos, which is Greek for God-bearer, indicating that Our Lady is truly the Mother of God. Paintings and sculptures often contain symbols which are also monuments, since the symbols represent some spiritual reality. The two give, keys given to Peter represent the two powers of ores and jurisdiction, which are represented right up here on the Baldacchino. The tiara representing, of course, the supreme jurisdiction of the Pope over the whole church. But these keys are bound together with a red cord, indicating that their proper usage should not be separated from each other which indicates then that the use of one's, uh, the sacramental powers that a priest had should never be separated from the rights of the church to determine who gets to use the sacraments and who doesn't. 
The church often uses symbols to draw our minds to God and to teach us about the spiritual realities. For example, IHS, which we often see, are the first letters in the name Jesus in Greek. The symbolism on liturgical items enriches the liturgy and adds to its mystery. The stripping of religious symbolism from the liturgical items in the last 40 years has reduced its beauty, splendor, and mystery, and that, that affects the various rites of the church. This has had a direct impact on the laity in their spiritual lives, insofar as it has lessened the mystery in their minds, and they have also tended to treat the liturgical items with less reverence, because there's less mystery. This is also why a rejection of the tradition is an insult against the generation which passed on the tradition faithfully and respectfully to us. It's a form of dishonor. In this respect, rejection of the tradition is akin to violation of the fourth commandment, since by doing so we dishonor those who pass these things on faithfully to us. So what does this all mean regarding the connection between liturgy and tradition? It means that there is an inseparable link between the two. Since the very nature of the tradition is to pass on the teachings of Christ to subsequent generations, how is the means of sanctification, such as the sacraments, the power of orders, sacramentals, the rites of the liturgy, and the like, and since the liturgy manifests the teachings of the church, then one of the ways in which tradition is done is by passing on the liturgy which contains those teachings of the church. Therefore, no subsequent generation can reject any legitimate liturgy of the church, even if it is not the particular rite in force, and by that we mean that it's not the particular rite being used. Every prior rite is still part of the patrimony of all of the subsequent generations by which it is a means of knowledge for them. It teaches them the faith of our fathers, that is, ultimately, the faith in Jesus Christ. Yet, we must be very careful to recognize the fact that the principal function of the magisterium is to protect and promote these monuments, that is, these traditions, in order to protect and promote the faith of those who follow them. This is a serious obligation on the side of the magisterium. It's not just a matter of passing on the teachings of Christ. It's a matter of passing on the whole of the tradition. Again, minor modifications can be made to perfect it, to make it a greater, more glorious, and more perfect manifestation of the faith. But it cannot be done to lessen the faith. The magisterium has an obligation to pass on the monuments, of which the liturgy is a part, intact. Our obligation on our part is to accept it. The priest is not there to play around with the liturgy. It's his place to be a vehicle of tradition. That is one of his essential functions, is to take what is given to him by the church, the teachings of the church, the monuments, the whole patrimony of the church, and pass it intact without violation to the subsequent generations. Therefore, what's our, what, what do we have to do? As priests, we simply, it's not our place to change the tradition. It's our place to pass. I've told people, you know, it's a little ridiculous because I'm getting to be a little bit known in the traditional circles. And I'm getting to be known purely because all I do is tell us what the saints have already told us. And that's the job of a priest. And it's selfless. It's not his place to pass on himself to everyone else. It's his place 
to be a selfless vehicle of passing on that which is given to him to the subsequent generations. The faithful's obligation is to accept graciously, humbly, and happily the goods that Christ has given to the church, the patrimony of the church, and the monuments. That's your obligation. So as parents, for example, your principal obligation to your children is to pass on the patrimony of the church, to pass on what the church has always taught, to teach your children those things which the church has always taught, and to be reverent in the manner in which the church has always taught. Don't fail in your obligations in this regard. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.